Welcome to Hook Switch Hotline. Where are you calling in from? Same place I've always been. Well, like Lewis Carroll wrote, it takes all the running you can do to keep in the same place. <laughs> well, if you're looking for a trip down the rabbit hole, let's talk about the Wonderland murders. Oh yeah, didn't you listen to last week about John Holmes? I think we covered it. You don't know the half of it. Warning. What you're about to hear is true. This call will delve deep into actual crimes, including murder, violence, kidnapping, mutilation, and sexual assault. Not suitable for children or the squeamish. Some will find this podcast disturbing and offensive. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Today on Hook Switch Hotline, The Wonderland Murders. It's now 1981, and John Holmes was at rock bottom. Dawn had returned, but his new drug connection, the Wonderland Gang, teased, mocked, and ridiculed him at every opportunity. Making things worse, he was flat broke, and his comeback adult film, Exhausted, was a total disaster. Holmes couldn't be faulted for thinking that he had fallen as far as he possibly could. But John Holmes was about to be proven wrong again. While freebasing cocaine with Ron Lonius, Bill DeVarrell, and Tracy McCourt, Holmes laid out his plan for a score. It was to be a simple robbery. The victim, however, was as big and dangerous as they come, Eddie Nash. On June 28, 1981, John Holmes went to Eddie Nash's house. It's important to remember that he still had Eddie Nash's trust and was coming and going at all hours of the day and night through an often unlocked back door. John goes there spends the night freebasing cocaine with Eddie Nash and before he leaves he leaves the sliding glass door open so the gang can come to the house and go in through the sliding glass door and hold Eddie Nash up basically. At 5 a.m. John Holmes returned to the Wonderland townhouse expecting the gang to be ready to roll to the house of Eddie Nash but there's nothing straightforward about ripping off one of Los Angeles's most prolific, and most violent dope dealers. It was clear that the gang was too doped up to do anything but sleep. By 8 a.m., the Wonderland gang had their act together and were ready to go. As a test, we completed the drive from the Wonderland townhouse to 3315 Donulola Place in Studio City, Eddie Nash's house, in just under eight minutes. In a hurry, it could be done in six. The Eddie Nash house is about a $2 million home in today's money. The Wonderland gang entered Eddie Nash's house through the back door that John Holmes had left open earlier. And they have San Francisco police badges, which they flash. And they say, this is a bust, you're under arrest, you know. And they quickly tie up Eddie Nash. It's unclear whether or not Eddie Nash fell for the ruse involving the fake police badges. But regardless, he led the gang to his secret stash, to a safe upstairs. They found the safe where the, the, the $100,000 worth of cocaine and a vial of pure heroin was and, and about $100,000 in jewelry and cash. And they really got off with a big score. In less than half an hour, the Wonderland gang were on their way back to the Wonderland Avenue townhouse, less than a mile away. They only made one mistake. They didn't kill Eddie Nash and Gregory Dolls. They let them live. Back at the Wonderland house, the gang divided up the loot and they gave John Holmes far less than the agreed-upon amount, far less than he felt he deserved. 
And I think Holmes is, is extremely upset because he set up this thing and he finds out that they, you know, got $100,000 worth of coke and here he's just got a few grams from it. But Holmes was desperate and he took what his new masters gave him and met up with Don in the San Fernando Valley. He came up into the apartment. Of course, we went into the bathroom again and he uncovered one of the largest piles of cocaine I'd ever seen. He was very high, very haggard looking again, but but very, very high. And he started dishing out the cocaine like nothing happened, um, like nothing changed. But a lot had happened. Nash and his bodyguards by now had freed themselves. Eddie Nash was, again, a big drug doer. He was a Palestinian with a lot of pride. He was kind of a godfather of his own world. And he was incensed, anyone is incensed when a robber comes in, but he was particularly incensed. Liberace's former boyfriend, Scott Torson, often exchanged Liberace's personal belongings for cocaine with Eddie Nash. Scott claims he was at Eddie Nash's house the day of the robbery, a few hours later. He was very angry, and he told me that he had been robbed. And he had sent dials out because they found out that John Holmes had set the robbery up. Eddie Nash quickly sent his right-hand man, Greg Dials, out to find John Holmes. And he soon did. Greg Dials and an accomplice brought John Holmes, against his will, back to the home of Eddie Nash. Scott Torson was still there. The next thing I know is that Dials had uh, barged in the front door with Holmes by the back of the neck, marched him right into uh, Nash's bedroom, and then that's when I was asked to leave. And um, so I went into the living room, and I could actually hear him. I mean, Nash had a violent temper. He was screaming. He was threatening to kill uh, John. He was threatening to kill every member of his family. Giles was beating the hell out of him. He was slamming his body. You know, you could hear the furniture. You could actually hear him slamming him up against the walls. The beatings and interrogation went on for over an hour before John was let out of the bedroom. Giles had him by the back of the neck, escorting him out. And Dials had a big, I don't know if it was a bat or a pipe in his hand. Greg Dials borrowed Scott Torson's car. He and two other men took John Holmes on a drive to the Wonderland house. It's now about 4 a.m., July the 1st, 1981. John punched in the security code, and they said, who is it? And he said, it's John Holmes, and they, they let him in. They, they, they weren't suspicious at all. They were really not suspecting that they were going to be attacked. But they were very much mistaken. Lind and McCourt were not at the residence at the time. McCourt was at his own place, and Lind was on his way to appear before a Sacramento court where he was being brought up on charges. Barbara Richardson was watching television when the attackers came in. Richardson wasn't part of the Wonderland gang. She was the girlfriend of David Lind. The three killers, using metal pipes, beat Richardson to death. They then went after Joy Miller, the leaseholder on the townhouse, and Billy DeVerrill. Then they found Joy Miller and Billy DeVerrill asleep in their bedroom. They were also viciously attacked. The wife of Ron Lanius, Susan, was down from Sacramento visiting her estranged husband. The killers found them next. Neighbors would later report having heard screams as the killers made their way through the house, leaving a river of blood, leaving behind blood-splattered walls and blood-puddled carpets. So why didn't the neighbors call the police? Well, this was the house of the Wonderland gang. 
and the neighborhood was already accustomed to hearing loud noises and comings and goings at all hours of the day and night at this house. So although this was a very upscale neighborhood, it didn't raise too many eyebrows. It's very telling of the nature of Los Angeles and its people, at least its upscale people at the time, that when the screams were heard from the Wonderland house, that some of the neighbors reported later thinking that it was just primal scream therapy and not anything to do with crime. The vicious beatings lasted the better part of two hours, and the killers only left when they were certain that everyone in Wonderland was dead. By about 6 a.m., Greg Diles and his accomplices returned to Eddie Nash's house with John Holmes. When they brought Holmes back, you know, I noticed that there was blood on Holmes. I noticed that there was blood on uh, Gregory Diles. John Holmes was shaken up, coked up, and scared. And he returned to the only safe place he had available. Just hours after the Wonderland murders, John was once again knocking on Sharon's door. He was bloody. Face, a lot of blood on the clothes, you know, that kind of thing. And I asked him what happened, and he said, I had an accident. You know, and I said, well, how did you get here? And he said, well, the car's okay. And he said, I'd like to clean up, and I need to, you know, change my clothes. Sharon sat in the bathroom talking to John as he cleaned up. I said, this isn't a car accident, what happened? And he said, well, I have to tell you, I saw four people murdered. Then it starts spilling out, you know, like, okay, it's confession time and you've got to get it all out because, you know, it hurts too much to have it there. As the sun rose over Los Angeles in the Hollywood Hills, four people lay dead inside the house on Wonderland Avenue. Miraculously, one victim was still clinging to life, Susan Lanius, former assistant district attorney Ron Cohen. The crime was not reported to the police uh, until the evening of the next day. Meanwhile, the, everybody in the world apparently went through that house. Um, when I say that, uh, friends of the residents of the house, uh, dopers, uh, went through the house, uh, stole, the, stole the dope, stole some money, walked over the bodies and no one called the police. On July 1st, 1981, at around 4 p.m., a full 12 hours after the murders, someone finally phoned the police. A woman's moans were heard by a mover who was working next door. He went to the house on Wonderland Avenue and found a woman beaten almost to death. Police at the scene said that the Wonderland crime scene was grislier than the Manson murders on Cielo Drive. Across town, John Holmes left his wife's house and made his way to his Hollywood motel room, where he'd left his young girlfriend, Dawn. And he looked terrible. It was uh, daylight when he came back. His eyes were bloodshot. Um, his face was just pale, and his demeanor was very dejected. Early the next morning, July the 2nd, police detectives caught a break. David Lind was a, uh, a biker from the Sacramento area. David Lind revealed to us that he and Ron Lanius and, and uh, Bill Deverall had robbed a, uh, a local purported narcotics dealer by the name of Ed Nash. He then brought up 
John Holmes and alluded to John Holmes being a so-called intermediary between the, the group up at Wonderland where the killings happened, the victims, and Ed Nash. The police put out an APB, an all-points bulletin for John Holmes. Finally, they located Holmes at a Hollywood motel. John was sitting on the bed facing the door, and all of a sudden I heard this um, like giant explosion. Um, and I thought it was a bomb. I jumped into his lap and grabbed a hold of him, and we were pressed up against the wall, and the police yelled, freeze. Don was booked, but quickly released. Meanwhile, John Holmes sat in jail overnight. The next day we got a phone call from John in jail and he said, you have to get me out, you have to come up with the bail. He said, um, they're going to kill me. I've had several death threats already. Holmes had already changed his mind. He'd made the deal. In exchange for witness protection, John Holmes would tell all, everything. The police detectives called Sharon and Don. They said they had John in protective custody. He was willing to give them some information, but he wasn't going to do it until he could speak to both Sharon and I together. Don and Sharon both agreed to meet John. Officers picked the woman up and drove them to the luxurious Bonaventure Hotel in downtown Los Angeles, just off the 110 freeway. For the next couple of days, we just kind of sat around very quiet. We all slept in the same bed with John in the middle. We had our meals served to us, you know, with guards with guns or cops with guns. John was stalling the Los Angeles police detectives. After two nights, police switched hotels. By day five, the police had gotten nowhere with the elusive homes. He took full advantage of this type of, uh, of treatment, and essentially we never got out of him what we wanted to get out of him and, and what we knew that he had. Things broke down at that point. They didn't believe what he was telling them. They just basically brought us back. The detectives released Don, John, and Sharon, but before driving away, the police had a warning. John knew dangerous forces would be coming for him, and quickly. John and Don were preparing to leave Hollywood, leave town, but John wanted a larger cash reserve before leaving familiar locations. Holmes was so desperate, he was willing to risk his life. John came up with the idea that Eddie Nash would possibly give us some money. We drove to the coffee shop just below um, Eddie Nash's house in Laurel Canyon and um, John concocted this plan. Incredibly, John Holmes' plan was to ask Eddie Nash for more money to fund his getaway. As motivation for Nash, Holmes had an amateurish lie. His idea was to tell him that someone was waiting for him if he didn't show up in an hour, that this person had letters that was going to be mailed to all these other people with information about Eddie. Holmes left Don at the coffee shop while he met with Eddie Nash. With each minute, her anxiety and fear grew. Finally, after almost two hours, John was walking through the coffee shop door. Well, he said he went up and he approached Eddie about giving him the money. And that Eddie said, why should I give you any money? Why shouldn't I kill you right here? And he said that a gun was put to his head and he was made to beg for his life. According to Holmes, Eddie Nash agreed to give Holmes a paltry $3,000. The instructions were that John and Don were to wait 30 minutes, then check Nash's mailbox. Inside was an envelope. There was half of what he'd asked for. So from there, uh, we just started driving. The nervous and shaken couple quickly went to John's sister's house in Montana. He thought Montana would be safe, but the law was figuratively hot on his heels. 
Back in Los Angeles, the detectives had turned up the heat on Eddie Nash. By October 1981, LAPD criminalists connected John Holmes to the murder scene. His palm print had been recovered from one of the Wonderland bedrooms. Police knew through their informants that one of the victims, Ron Lanius, had always been cruel to Holmes, forcing him to display his penis at parties as though Holmes were a trick circus animal. There appeared to be sufficient evidence to file murder charges uh, on Holmes. The detectives wanted John Holmes badly. He had never appeared in court on his 1981 computer theft charge. That was used as the pretext for an arrest warrant. We got a phone call from Ohio from his mother saying that the police had just been there and the FBI and that they were looking for us and that we were considered armed and drug crazed. The couple took off for Florida. They acted less like fugitives and more like newlyweds. They stopped at every tourist spot they felt like. He was back to his old self. He was, um, you know, fun to be around. We stopped at places like the Grand Canyon. We stopped at the Petrified Forest. We did a bunch of fun stuff again. But as soon as the money ran out, Holmes reverted back to his old ways. He started with petty thefts and breaking into cars. In one particular car break-in, Holmes scored a gun, which he kept for protection. After three weeks, they reached their destination, Miami. We arrived in North Miami Beach on Collins Avenue, and we pulled up to a transitional hotel um, called the Fountainhead. It just seems really like a couple, a few weeks, basically. Um, when I suspected John was using again, he seemed more stressed out when he came back at night. Pretty soon he started making suggestions about um, some of the hotels that were across the street. And pretty soon he was making suggestions about, you know, well, if a girl was to walk on the beach, she could probably make some money. I kind of turned a deaf ear to that kind of talk. John found work at a nearby construction site as a carpenter. He insisted that I go out on the beach. I refused. And I started crying and I said, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. And um, he ended up beating the crap out of me. Dawn prostituted herself on the beaches of North Miami, using a hotel to turn tricks. He'd take the money and he put me in the bathtub and scrubbed me up and basically, we, you know, he just cried a lot. He hated, he hated having me to put me out there, you know, he said, but we really needed the money because we have to go. After weeks of hooking on the beach, Don had again had enough. He started to beat me up and I ran out the door and I ran all the way down by the pool and he caught up with me by my hair and beat the crap out of me right in front of everyone who we lived with or lived around. No one said a word or made any move to help her. John left a few hours later. That's the last time I saw John. Don moved in with a friend who was a stripper. Don gave police the address of where she and John had been staying. In November 1981, police finally found 37-year-old John Holmes. Holmes was arrested and returned to Los Angeles, where he faced a difficult decision. Either inform on Eddie Nash or be charged with murder. But John Holmes refused to cooperate. He was scared to death. On December the 8th, 1981, in an attempt to convince Holmes to cooperate, he was officially charged with murder. That same day, Greg Diles, the bodyguard of Eddie Nash, was arrested. But police were forced to release him because the district attorney felt that there was just not enough evidence. Holmes, however, was kept in custody. In fact, he was placed in a special ward in the Los Angeles County Jail reserved for high-profile criminals. 
Even among these infamous criminals, John was a celebrity. Here's John's jailhouse psychologist. I was excited. I had seen his movies in years past. Here's Ron Cohen, former deputy district attorney. Oh my God, this was a murderer. He should be treated as a murderer. So I was upset at that. Holmes became a prison trustee, but moving around the jail delivering magazines was sometimes dangerous for Holmes. One time somebody tried to stick a pencil in his eye, and another time they went after him with a shank, a little weapon knife they had made, and so they moved John to a single cell. Though these incidents were never officially connected to Eddie Nash, they reinforced John's fears that even in jail, those who wanted him dead could reach him. On June the 3rd, 1982, after six months in jail, John Holmes' murder trial began. The publisher of Screw Magazine, Al Goldstein, covered the trial for Playboy. The, the atmosphere in the courtroom was fascination. It's a murder trial. It's a celebrity murder trial. Uh, you've got uh, a porno actor who not only is, try, is charged with murder, he, he jumps bail. He's in hiding for months. It, it was like a bad novel. A bad novel that Los Angeles couldn't put down. Pat Morrison reported on the trial for the Los Angeles Times. There were so many things about this case that had not happened before or that caught the public's attention. For one thing, when this finally came to trial, it was the first time ever in the history of the American judicial system that videotape of the murder scene, the crime scene, was admitted as evidence. And what that videotape showed was this blood-strewn, upscale house in which four people had been beaten to death by steel pipes and baseball bats, another person critically wounded. Prosecutor Ron Cohen. It just showed how horrible murder can be. That was very, very strong. We knew what the murder weapon was because uh, the bodies had threads on them. It was a pipe, a threaded pipe. The bodies actually on the wounds had the threads of the pipe embedded in them. It was blood all over. I remember I threw up twice, and it was, I mean, particularly gruesome. Uh, it, was, it, it was not just the murder of these people, but it, it, it was a murder that the uh, perpetrators enjoyed doing. Publisher Al Goldstein. It was blood all over. I remember I threw up twice, and it was, I mean, particularly gruesome. Uh, it, was, it, it was not just the murder of these people, but it, it, it was a murder that the uh, perpetrators enjoyed doing. On June the 7th, Susan Lanius, the miracle survivor, took the stand. Deputy Bob Souza, Los Angeles Police Department robbery homicide, retired. She would never be able to identify anyone. Uh, about as close as we got, she recalled noises, uh, thumping noises. She recalled shadowy figures coming at her. Star witness John Lind linked John Holmes to the robbery at Eddie Nash's house and to the murders at Wonderland Avenue. Deputy Tom Lang, Los Angeles Police Department robbery homicide, retired. He would not be bullied on the stand. He would not be intimidated by anybody. Without a doubt, I think David Lind initially was the strongest witness. The prosecution seemed to have a strong circumstantial case against John Holmes. Holmes claimed he was only present at the murders because he feared for his own life. But according to the prosecution, the distinction was irrelevant. Duress is not a defense to murder. Uh, somehow the defense was, was able to argue it. Holmes' lawyers called no witnesses. 
But in their closing arguments, his defense attorneys repeated arguments that John Holmes was innocent and the real killers were still at large. On June the 25th, 1982, almost a full year after the murders, John Holmes was found not guilty. Deputy District Attorney Cohen. I was so shocked when I was not guilty. And uh, here I was, a young deputy district attorney. I walk out into a milieu of TV cameras and lights, and I have a microphone stuffed into my face saying, uh, well, how do you feel? And the only thing I remember saying is, well, the sun will rise tomorrow. So I was too much in shock. Now a free man, John Holmes had nothing. No career, no money, no women. So he returned to what he knew best, sex films. Former actor Bill Margold. Welcome back, hail, hail, the king is alive. He was tired, but again, he was still able to function because within the same time frame, Misty Dawn on the set of Marathon in San Francisco says, I can't wait to get that man up my ass. Porn star Ron Jeremy recalls it was a very tense time for John Holmes. He was afraid that there was people out to hurt him because supposedly the whole thing between him and Ed Nash and Greg Diles. So uh, he had a gun. He, had, he was packed. He had a gun on him. His assistant, Bill Emerson, had a gun. All these guys are packing. In 1984, John did something that he had never done before. John made a feature-length gay porn movie. In July 1986, John Holmes was diagnosed HIV positive, but unfortunately, he didn't allow the disease to stop his work. John Holmes did a movie, a gay film, for a company called Paradise Visuals, and the actor he worked with in that movie supposedly got ill, too, from, from a virus. When rumors about John's HIV status circulated around Los Angeles, John went to Italy and made sex films with the country's most famous sex star, Chicolina. The thing it really is a horror story, what makes it so horrendous is that, you know, John Holmes knew he had the virus and he went across the ocean to work with Chicolina. He actually had sex with her and I talked to her years afterwards and she thought he was a total creep for that. Detective Tom Lang also heard of John's illness. He suspected that the specter of death hanging over Holmes might cause him to reconsider and confess and reveal exactly what did happen at Wonderland. He played it to the hilt all the way to the end. Never got a straight, straight answer out of him. It was all crap right up to the moment he died. John Holmes died in March of 1988. Eddie Nash right-hand man Greg Diles remained under the watchful eye of the Los Angeles Police Department. Greg Diles died of liver failure in 1997. That same year, a joint federal, local, and state task force began re-examining the Wonderland murders. As a result, in early 2000, a federal grand jury indicted Eddie Nash on charges of running a racketeering enterprise. The indictment was broad, going back 25 years. The 16-count indictment also accused Nash of ordering the Wonderland murders. 71-year-old Eddie Nash was arrested at his home in Tarzana, California, just north of Los Angeles. Nash pled guilty to all counts and was jailed awaiting a trial scheduled for 2001. Nash admitted to jury tampering, for which the statute of limitations had already run out, and to having ordered his associates to retrieve stolen property from the Wonderland house, which may have resulted in violence including murder, but he denied having planned the murders that occurred. He also agreed to cooperate with law enforcement authorities. In exchange, he received a four-and-a-half-year prison sentence, including time already served, and a $250,000 fine. On August 9, 2014, Eddie Nash died. He was rumored to have had dozens of people killed, burying their skulls in the desert. 
John Holmes' ex-wife Sharon retired from a career in nursing. Sharon died October 28, 2012 in Haines, Oregon. Dawn turned her life around and eventually relocated to Northern California and finally to the Pacific Northwest, where she now lives with her daughter. Drug addiction is really powerful. Um, it can change your life in an instant without you even being aware of what's happened. Not a lot of people make it. Um, I consider myself one of the lucky ones. John Holmes was an addict who beat his girlfriend, a thief who got mixed up in a grisly murder, a porn star who continued to work even after he knew he had AIDS. And even today, he remains a hero to many. Others, including porn producer Julia St. Vincent, well, they feel differently. He wanted the real person of you to show. He wanted to rip your heart out and find out what it was made of. He wanted your soul. If they think who he was and what he did and the sum total of his life was heroic, they're mentally defective. I'm sorry. I can't say anything else. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hook Switch Hotline. Please subscribe and come back next week where we'll delve deep into more graphic true crimes. With every crime, someone somewhere has more information. That someone could be you. Call Hook Switch Hotline with your comment or contribution on this or an upcoming episode at 415-448-7263.